Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. Coming up, we won't talk about Albertsons and Instacart pairing up, and we won't talk about Kroger earnings because we'll address that on Retail Focus later this week. But what we will talk about is restaurant spending going up on Thanksgiving and Black Friday, according to one data set. We'll talk about earnings for the Campbell Soup Company, National French Toast Day being Wednesday, and the big story of the week, Buffalo Wild Wings and the sale regarding Buffalo Wild Wings. But first this, you know about the perks that come with owning your own business, like financial freedom, being your own boss, and having more control of your time. But maybe you're just not sure where to start. All of this could be yours, potentially, if you choose to open a UPS Store franchise. The UPS Store brings in 35 years of franchising experience, and they were just ranked the number four top franchise to own by Entrepreneur Magazine's 2017 Franchise 500 list. They offer stability, the support and reputation of a world-renowned brand, and a proven business model with all the training and marketing support you'll need to make your entrepreneurial dreams come true. Stores are available in large and small markets across the country now, and their experts will help find a location that's just right for you. Plus, there's financing for those who qualify in special programs for military veterans. The time to promote yourself to business owner could be now. Visit theupsstorefranchising.com slash focus to get started today. That's theupsstorefranchising.com slash focus. Well, in news that was widely covered by traditional media, Buffalo Wild Wings enters into a preliminary deal to be taken private just months after Mercado Capital Management won a proxy war against the existing Buffalo Wild Wings board. In our view here, really as circumstances played out, Mercado played the role of someone who ordered 24 wings at a restaurant, could only eat about 14 and a half, as they were perhaps in over their head. And this is what a lot of analysts are suggesting, that Mercado got in, realized that they were in too deep, Looks like they still might make some money, but overall, not the best look for Marcato, even though they stand to potentially become profitable. And Leighton, one of the things that we certainly want to do is kind of put to rest this idea that Arby's is buying Buffalo Wild Wings, because in reality, it's a much larger company buying B-dubs. So here you have Rourke Capital, who's known really as a QSR operator with Arby's, but also Hardee's and Carl's Jr. This is a QSR-based company, and here you have Buffalo Wild Wings, which is essentially an FSR, a full-service restaurant that's really been translating sales into more carryout, more offerings, trying to attract millennials coming in on their work hour. But overall, Buffalo Wild Wings has been struggling mightily for quite some time, and a lot of activist investor pressure over the years. You see a lot more of this pressure, and we'll talk about Chipotle later and how this really actually has a lot of parallels to that story happening with Bill Ackman over there. Right now, this translates into around $157 a share with this transaction or proposed transaction, around $2.4 billion in cash. Rourke Capital has the funds. They're actually a privately held company, but they have the funds. Around $2.9 billion if you include all of the debt in total. So this actually represents a 7% bump as far as Monday's opening share price for Buffalo Wild Wings. And if you look at Buffalo Wild Wings, like I said, they've struggled with 
different aspects of their business. And really, it's the competitive landscape. A lot of people are saying that restaurants are dead, but it's just like in retail. There's more players now to have to compete against. And the dynamic is really different now. Millennials trying to eat at home more. We see the Blue Apron IPO coming out, but a lot of competition in that space, but also rising food costs as it pertains to the intricacies of the Buffalo Wild Wings business. Chicken wings over the past two years, Trent, have actually climbed in prices. However, they have done some other cost-cutting measures thanks to Mercado playing a little bit more of a role in terms of management and the executive strategic alignment of the company trying to bring down costs around 15 to 20% or so in some other areas. But again, it's just a very competitive landscape and we can actually draw a lot of similarities to companies that we've talked about on this podcast and the retail focus, including Red Robin and Chili's. They've had similar pressures and they've also been focusing on simplified menus and quick and convenient service, trying to differentiate where they can. For Buffalo Wild Wings, it's not only a bad thing to see that costs are going up in your overall business model and that people aren't actually visiting your locations as much. It's also a negative thing to see those NFL ratings, which has actually been trending in the downward direction over the past one and a half years or so. So here you have a business that's predicated upon people wanting entertainment at your full service restaurant and wanting things at a reasonable price point. And those are two things that are really pressured up against the business model of Buffalo Wild Wings. And Carryout has helped the chain somewhat in the recent years with the quick lunch menu option for those people who work those normal workday hours. But it's not really been able to be enough to stave off this newfound wave of this activist pressure brought forth by Marcado. Marcado came in about a year and a half ago wanting fairly quick turnaround results. They came in with sort of a thesis that the management, the executive team in place was a little too old, a little too stagnant, and riding on the previous wave of success. And when we say previous wave, Trent, we're talking about 20 years of successful comps for this company. And they essentially ended up calling for longtime CEO Sally Smith to retire. And she announced not too long ago that she was going to be retiring at the end of the calendar year. This is actually a move that was criticized by some and some long-term shareholders of Buffalo Wild Wings because they have had one of the biggest runs in the FSR space ever. A company that was talked about a lot and not that long ago for the incredible run that they've had. Mercado and Rourke said that Mercado fully supports the buyout offer, leaving a lot of analysts, a lot of shareholders to really scratch their heads because we're talking about a private equity firm, an activist investor that came into their position, into their equity stake only 1.5 years ago. And so you look at a company that really tries to enable a lot of trust within the shareholders, within the executive team, really trying to say, look, we're in this for the long term. We want to have a turnaround strategy as far as sustainability is concerned. We want this company to last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. We don't just want a quick in and out. And this is exactly what this has turned out to be, Trent. Marcado through October has overseen some of the marketing changes for the company. And like I'd mentioned previously, some cost-cutting actions that have helped the bottom line a little bit. But in order to maintain the company's market valuation and current position, apparently luck has ran out for Mercado. And you mentioned Marcado doing some things towards the positive, but again, these are things that the current management system already were eyeballing. And 
As with Bill Ackman and Chipotle, their efforts, Mercado's at least, or Mercado's board members' efforts so far have shown that the company can only grow so much with this highly concentrated landscape that's out there and the competitive promotional pricing actions that are being offered all over the place, particularly when your singular input cost in terms of chicken wings, the one thing that really your company is known for that price is going through the roof right now. Chicken wings are so expensive when so many other ingredients are actually seeing deflation. And you wonder really what the future is going to look like for Buffalo Wild Wings when food inflation does hit. It hasn't hit towards the end of this year like we thought it would or to the extent that we thought it would. But people are projecting 1% to 2% for next year, and certainly that's going to include chicken wings. You look over at how Chipotle's done it. They've increased prices across the board pretty much. They've also turned to more conventional marketing instead of rewarding some of their devoted fans through differentiated tactics. That hasn't necessarily shown to be the best strategy for Chipotle, but we see Buffalo Wild Wings. They've done a lot of conventional marketing, particularly radio, particularly sports radio in the past, and you've seen some of those efforts be amped up recently despite the fact that they're cutting costs in other places. The turnaround for the company, at least Buffalo Wild Wings, was looked at as a failure by some analysts heading into the fall season. And I quote from a Stiefel analyst, Chris O'Cole, he says, This process has taken longer than we expected, which we believe could be due to the company and the board struggling to define a clear vision for improving shareholder value. This was written in a research note on Monday. As for Mercado's financial position, the sole reason they had initiated a proxy battle was that their average buying price looked to be around $143 per share, according to CNBC. So if you ballot it all out, if the deal goes through as it's proposed, which some analysts, again, are saying there may only be a 50-50 shot of shareholders actually approving this particular deal. This would give the private equity firm a 9.8% return on their money. Now, a 9.8% return over the span of one and a half years isn't that great necessarily. And you might say, well, obviously, they had a lot of money in terms of shares. When you look at the market cap for Buffalo Wild Wings, it's a pretty decent return. But when you consider the 23% increase in the S&P during that same time frame begins to look a little worse. And not only that, this wasn't at no cost for Mercado because, again, they were doing a lot of activist investing. Remember all the PR they were doing. Remember the website, winningatwildwings.com. Remember all of the stuff that they were sending out to shareholders. That all costs money. And so all of these people that they brought in to try and push for this proxy war certainly came at a cost and their realistic return is a lot less than that 9.8% that we're seeing over the 18 months. Now, Mercado had promised shareholders in particular in some of their notes to shareholders early on during the proxy war, a longer term position in the company saying that Buffalo Wild Wings was wrong when Buffalo Wild Wings said that a lot of these activist investors sought to just buy and then sell afterwards at a very quick profit after winning the proxy war and then withdraw their resources. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. In fact, Buffalo Wild Wings and CEO Sally Smith more or less correct in that. And a lot of activist investors will do longer term positions in a company unless they realize a turnaround may take longer than they expected or is altogether not feasible. Again, something that a lot of people from the outside looking in thought was that this process would take a long time and that Mercado would have to be in for the long haul if they were going to try and engineer a turnaround at Buffalo Wild Wings. They see now what all the analysts saw 
And they're now receiving criticism, very justifiably so, for pushing for the buyout offer as they basically got in and out without adding real value to Buffalo Wild Wings. In fact, you can make an argument that they stripped value because Sally Smith had done such a great job for so many years. Yeah, they hit a few speed bumps recently, but she wasn't really given the opportunity, a realistic opportunity at least, to help dig them out of it. And you have to think, Leighton, when you look at this deal with Roark Capital, if Sally Smith had stayed on as the CEO, this deal might actually have gone for more than what it's currently ticketed for. In any case, let's take a look at some of the value here for Roark Capital and why they might buy into a chain in Buffalo Wild Wings that I think you and I are pretty bearish on. Yeah, like we said, Arby's is a QSR that has really turned around in the past couple of years, past five to ten years, really. If you look at their track record, they had falling same-store sales. Rourke has turned that operation around tenfold. They've done really well at marketing. They've done really well at refreshing the Arby's chain. And they've done really well with Carl's Jr. as well. We tend to forget that they actually own Carl's Jr., but Carl's Jr., they themselves have a really good marketing team bolstering that brand awareness there but you see since Mercado could not really do much operationally to boost Buffalo Wild Wings in the short term as much as at least maybe some of those executives had anticipated Rourke will look to leverage their marketing prowess to boost top line sales this is obviously what's probably going to be happening see over the last 10 or 11 months or so they've undergone a lot of aggressive refranchising really trying to have those company-owned Buffalo Wild Wings locations in the hands of more successful franchisees, I do not see that stopping. I see a future for Buffalo Wild Wings where they're in the hands of only franchisees, something similar to what McDonald's has, something similar to what Wendy's and Sonic both want. And this is interesting because for an FSR, you really do have to relinquish more control overall. You think of a QSR is more operationally streamlined, Trent. But with an FSR, there's a lot more that goes into it. A lot more care has to be taken as far as Buffalo Wild Wings is concerned because it is an entertainment venue and it is a full-service venue. You have to be able to be compassionate with the customer. You have to have that one-on-one -on -one approach. Whereas in a QSR, it's just more of an in-and-out transaction. By now, everyone has heard of the initiatives management has successfully implemented at Arby's to return consistent positive comps. The one question we have is, can they translate that into a full service restaurant where, let's be honest, they have very little experience in that particular landscape. It is going to be something we're going to be keeping an eye on. And me personally, I'm a little bit saddened that Rourke is a privately held firm. You see other companies that are publicly traded afterwards, after an acquisition takes place such as this, how much capital do they have to put back into the brand to reinvest and make it a sustainable long-term business? And right now, Trent, we're not going to be able to see really through any sort of transparent lens how much capital exactly they are going to have to deploy working capital to make sure the Buffalo Wild Wings stays competitive and actually grows from here on out. Well, we move on to our second story. This actually has some tie-ins to what we'll be talking about on the retail focus this week. Restaurant spending on Black Friday was up even further than retail sales, according to First Data Survey. We'll talk on Friday's retail focus about what we see as a rather favorable Black Friday for retailers. But here's something that we weren't necessarily expecting, and certainly something we weren't expecting to have on the podcast. But this is such a favorable bump in sales for restaurants during around the two-day period surrounding Black Friday, 
We delve into the numbers and we see that the results come via payments technology company First Data, which in turn was reported on in Nation's Restaurant News on Tuesday, November 28th. First Data analyzes data from merchants via card processors, so there's a slight possibility numbers could be skewed based on an increased number of cards used at the point of sale. To their credit, however, they do attempt to account for this, but we do have to admit that there still is a possibility of a slight skew because of those payments. They looked at 1.3 million merchants overall, 1.1 brick and mortar, 200,000 e-commerce. Spending between food and retail increased a whopping 11.9%, hitting that double-digit figure that was really looked at by analysts as something more of a goal. Overall, during the Thanksgiving period and Black Friday, which is more good news for retail, but their data suggests that restaurant sales alone went up 6.3%. One of the most interesting breakdowns by First Data takes place across restaurant categories. We look into those categories, Trent, you see that of the restaurant growth seen this year during the two days, 57% of it was accounted by QSRs, 40% of overall spending because QSRs, you tend to spend a little less per check. Casual dining restaurants took 17% of the growth or 27% of the overall spending. You see check size increasing there compared to QSRs. But FSRs saw somewhat lower growth overall, 12% of overall growth, 11% of overall spending. Fast casuals took 10% of the growth, 16% of the overall average. Finally, upscale restaurants took only 4% of the growth and 5% of the sales. And Trent, you're going to go into some of the more detailed takeaways from this report, but you can see that a lot of people, when you're out and about, we and we knew that retail brick-and-mortar sales were going to be strong, and it turns out they are going to end up neutral, if not positive, which we'll talk about on this week's Retail Focus. But when you're out and about with your family in the car, you're probably going to just want a quick bite to eat. So that's why I think a lot of QSRs accounted for 57% of the overall spending. An interesting dynamic here because you just want to get fed. You're busy shopping. You want to be able to get all of those quick deals, all of those sale items before they sell out. So this really makes sense, but it ends up being a positive, a net positive for the entire industry as a whole. And so when we're talking about the percentage of net growth here or percentage of overall growth, we're talking about the percentage of that increase of 6.3% each of those categories took away. And Leighton mentioned QSRs did very well. They accounted for 40% of the overall spending, over half of that 6.3% growth number. And again, part of the reason is that people want quick food. I think another one of those reasons is because QSR companies across the board, we just talked about Arby's in the last story, they have positioned themselves in a better part of the marketplace. When we look at McDonald's, we see kiosks being installed across the country, a fresh rollout of coffee beverages, that type of thing. And again, coffee, a big seller right around Black Friday. We see a number of other restaurants reforming their image. Wendy's has gone through an image reformation program, especially with their brick-and-mortar stores and the look of their brick-and-mortar restaurant outlets over the last few years. This is something that Burger King worked on five to six years ago for Restaurant Brands International. We talk all the time about Del Taco and the new QSR Plus category. So, a lot of this has to do with those individual QSR restaurants and the success that they're having. And it's not just the traditional burger chains either. 
After all, we've seen just as much growth in the pizza category in QSRs, if not more growth there than some of the other categories. So I think QSR growth here reflective of most of what we've seen in the industry of late. Also to be expected was the shrinking market share of the family dining restaurants as a lot of those have struggled. When we talk about family dining restaurants, we're talking about the likes of Applebee's, IHOP, Denny's. Those type of restaurants have struggled to continue to bring customers in, particularly the restaurants like Applebee's. We've seen Chili's go back to the drawing board for their new slimmed Chili's menu. They're offering more meat in some of their dishes. So we've seen Chili's go back to the drawing board there, and it's all because of that negative traffic. But when you step up to casual dining, we see good results year-long from Darden and Outback. Positive same-store sales or same-restaurant sales from Destination Restaurant like Cheesecake Factory. So it's really no surprise that casual dining restaurants did grow by a significant margin. They took 17% of that 6.3% growth and they took 27% of the overall spending because a lot of those families, Leighton, you mentioned there's just as many that want to get a quick bite to eat, but several of them are going to look and take that opportunity with family, visiting with family in town, that type of thing to go have a nice meal out on Friday right after everyone cooked inside on Thursday for Thanksgiving. At least that's usually how it goes. My personal Thanksgiving dinner was a peanut butter sandwich as we were on the road last week. But when you look at casual restaurants, it's really that Friday that they're looking to capitalize. And it seemed like they came through this year. However, I think the one thing that might have been a bit of a surprise is that fast casual didn't grow at the rate we might have expected relative to the other segments. And they accounted for just 16% of the overall market share in terms of sales over those two days. And then some fast casual brands have taken a PR hit of late, like Chipotle, for example, and many are closed Thanksgiving. Again, a lot of these companies are a little bit progressive in terms of being open about giving employees time off rather than making employees work. For example, Chipotle is one of those. So you're really only taking in one day of sales, whereas a lot of the casual restaurants are actually open for Thanksgiving and they offer some sort of Thanksgiving dinner. But really here, I think in fast casual, we see a dynamic where the space is starting to become far too crowded to truly attract new market share. There are just so many fast casual restaurants. And honestly, if you have family coming in, if you have family visiting and you're not rushing around shopping, looking for a quick bite to eat, you're probably not going to go to a Chipotle. You're probably going to go to more of a sit down restaurant, but a restaurant with a perceived nicer feel than say your family style restaurants like an Applebee's, for example. Also impacting things overall for the numbers as we step back is the number of restaurants opening on Thanksgiving. I think a lot of this six 6.3% growth year over year in terms of restaurant sales is due to Thanksgiving creep. And just like we talk about the Thanksgiving creep as a way for retailers to boost overall sales numbers, that's happening with restaurants too. Family dining establishments like IHOP and Denny's have long been open on Thanksgiving. So those type of restaurants unlikely to see much of a boost because of expanded hours. And that's certainly borne out in the numbers. However, there are some restaurants, Cracker Barrel, for example, who have recently released a to-go Thanksgiving dinner option. Cracker Barrel did this for the first time in 2016. And given the propensity of growth in the to-go segment, I feel like this to-go Thanksgiving dinner option that was not only offered by Cracker Barrel, but a number of other restaurants and a number of casual restaurants, moreover, that could be a driver of an increase in average ticket size and also overall traffic coming in and out. And that's one of the reasons why we see these amplified credit card numbers 
from this particular study. And as an example, in the fine dining segment, Ruth's Chris began offering a Thanksgiving dinner that came in at about $40 per adult, and they offered takeout Thanksgiving meals at that same rate, where casual and upscale restaurants like Landry's, for example, have recently rethought their approach to major holidays in an attempt to claim white space. So you see Landry's oftentimes open Thanksgiving and Christmas. You see restaurants like the Rainforest Cafe, for example, at major tourist centers, they're open during the holidays more often than not as well. So I think a lot of these other macro trends are affecting this growth that was noted by this company First Data and again reported on in the nation's restaurant news. Well, we talked about it at the top of the show, but you know about the perks that come with owning your own business, like financial freedom, being your own boss, even having control of your time. But if you're not sure where to start, potentially a good place could be opening a UPS store franchise. For those of you potential business owners that are a little bit risk averse, they bring in the security of 35 years of franchising experience, and they were just ranked the number four top franchise to own by Entrepreneur Magazine's 2017 Franchise 500 list. They offer stability and the support and reputation of their brand, but also a proven business model with all the training and marketing support you will ever need to make your entrepreneurial dreams come true. Stores are available in both small and large markets across the country. So now is the time to act and their experts will help find a location that's just right for you. Plus there's financing for those who qualify, special programs as well for military veterans. The time to promote yourself to business owner is now. Visit the franchising.com slash focus to get started today. That's the upsstorefranchising.com slash focus. Well, we move into earnings for the first time on this episode of the Food Focus podcast as the Campbell Soup Company released earnings just prior to Thanksgiving. Shares of the company fell 8% after this earnings release that took place last week. The company has struggled mightily this year, down nearly 23% in terms of its share value. Now, a lot of people might be looking at this and saying, well, they're primarily a canned soup company, so we see why their market share might be down. But the thing is, Campbell has worked aggressively to try and acquire new and upcoming brands, and in fact, they own more brands than probably you might think. The company was founded in 1869. They're currently headquartered in Camden, New Jersey, and despite all of these acquisitions they've made, despite all of their forays into organic and all-natural, they've still struggled to gain real traction there and they're starting to see their long-standing shelf space slowly get diminished in some grocery outlets. Not necessarily in the juice segment, because Bolthouse Juice performing very well for the company, but other areas of organic and all-natural are not. There are several reasons for this most recent reporting quarter's share price falling. The company missed on several key analyst estimates, and Layton has those. The reporting period here was for their first quarter fiscal 2018 Revenue for Campbell fell around 2%, coming in at $2.16 billion. This means it missed consensus estimates by around $10 million. Net income attributable to the company fell to $275 million, or on an earnings per share basis, $0.91. Cents. This is in the first quarter ended October 29th from around $292 million in net income was last year. So around $0.94 cents per share. There And you can see that net income fell due to a number of reasons, a lot of problems on the adjusted front as well. You see that even if you take out some one-time expenses for the company, the company earned one cent more on the earnings per share side. They missed those adjusted earnings expectations by about five cents per share. So 
not only one-time expenses really affecting the company, but operationally, Trent, they have been really failing to find traction in some of their bigger market segments. Long-term, the company has dropped its expected fiscal 2018 guidance due to a number of these factors. 2018 adjusted profit is now between $2.95 per share to $3.02 per share, previously slated around $0.05 to $0.06 cents higher on both the bottom and top end of that. This is opposed to analysts' previous expectation of $3.05 per share for the full fiscal year 2018. So as we read through the earnings call transcripts, what went wrong exactly in the management's view? Denise Morrison made it clear from the start that the company really does need to improve as a whole. This includes all facets of their business. She actually said that they expected the first half of fiscal 2018 to be a challenging first half. She said that soup sales ended up dropping 9% for the period, or what they call organic soup sales. They're seeing less demand from grocers during the buildup to the holiday season. That is an alarming thing for this company who's been a staple down the soup aisle. Bad weather is also to blame, which we saw media outlets making fun of in a weird way because bad weather as it pertains to carrot crops was actually something that was making the news. Not people stopping from going to the grocery stores due to bad weather and buying their product, but actually a increase in carrots actually forced prices to go up. So carrot prices have gone up due to crop destruction and therefore domestic EBITDA went down around 14%. So they're less profitable overall because the price elasticity really wasn't there to increase prices enough to fill that gap. The 14%, however, is not all entirely the carrot's fault as also related to whether the hurricanes have reportedly affected their supply chain in some of their biggest markets, most notably during the call, Florida and Texas. Costs will get back to normal long-term, the company reassures investors and analysts, but the company did not lay out an exact time frame. I would like to see, having looked in other earnings transcripts talking about hurricane damages and supply chain issues related to those damages, a more clear time frame as to when they are going to be getting back on track. Just to say that they're going to be getting on track at some time in the future really doesn't reassure the investors that all is well within the company and the operational side of things. But the aforementioned issues impacted the 2018 forward guidance, as you can see from the previously noted miss there versus analyst expectations. As it pertains to the United States soup market, when you think of Campbell, you think of soup. Shelf-stable soup is about 95% of the concentration in soups and broths category in grocery retail here in the United States. In the last couple of years, studies have shown that the volume of soups has actually gone down around 2% annually, which could be a reason that Campbell's hedging sort of by getting into other niches, other product categories like Trent had mentioned. And while prices have gone up about 2%, this doesn't necessarily fill the gap or really promote the idea that this is a growth-centric business. It isn't clear of volume declines or related to increases in soup buys at restaurants like Panera or otherwise. There's really no mention of that. In all honesty, people could actually be consuming more soup than they were previously, just not at the grocery store and certainly not Campbell's product. According to Euromonitor International, Campbell's soup actually continued to lead soup by a wide margin in terms of market share in the United States for 2016 with a 42% value share, though the company's sales actually fell by 8% over 
over the review period. So you can see that sales overall are just not that strong in this particular category. The market opportunity, I looked this up in terms of dollars, is said to be up around $5.4 billion or 1.3 million tons of soup annually, if you want to put it in terms of volume there. According to Euromonitor, again, they predict that this category actually will be flat, maybe decline a little bit through 2021 with increases and decreases in the different subcategories. But Trent, this is a business that is really trying to diversify itself, but still a big problem if you're a shareholder in the company. With the diversification, I think the reason they're looking towards diversification is exactly what you mentioned there on that deep dive into soup volumes. The fact that prices are relatively stagnant overall, volume is relatively stagnant overall. There's not going to be a whole lot of organic growth there for Campbell's to capture. So in order to rebound and create long-term value for shareholders, the company promised to, and I quote here, differentiate brands, drive innovation, particularly in health and well-being, and also in the snacking category, end quote, they want to also increase their e-commerce capabilities and further diversify their portfolio, which should mean more mergers and acquisitions. They said that these key investments are imperative in their business. However, we can see that a worsening cash flow position based especially on this earnings call, that may hinder their goals to accelerate some sort of restructuring or accelerate further acquisition action. They have shown an inability to properly market many of their newer products, and it's a little bit concerning that they haven't executed well with initial branding given their high level of brand awareness. After all, that red and white soup can is iconic here in the United States. Many of their traditional soup offerings look entirely different than organic soup, which may be a mistake with the label recognition they have built up over time. At the same time, a lot of us see that red and white label. We don't think organic either. So the company has a difficult approach coming up with how they treat organic products and how they treat their other brands that they're bringing into the fold. They did note that their advertising expense is comparable to other companies. And when looking at the numbers, we agree in terms of this particular point. But the issue here might not be the level of expenditure, rather what they are advertising and where they are advertising. Obviously, when your organic soup growth is negative, at least in terms of soup sales, maybe that advertising isn't working. One of the good things here, though, is that they have focused on more in-store promotion. They didn't mention whether this was special signage or otherwise, though we've seen a lot of self-standing displays in soup aisles for Campbell's products. And it's not always the iconic red and white soup cans with the Campbell's label on it, but oftentimes it's some of their brand extensions and some of their Chunky Max soups, which is something the company is really bullish on. Also, their Well Yes soup that they've rolled out, which is another thing we've seen some freestanding racks for in grocery stores, particularly Kroger. As a legacy company here, it's always interesting to see the management discussing cost savings in the biggest parts of the business while mentioning the need to reinvest in growth for the future. After all, they recognize they're up against competitors that are okay breaking even or even noting yearly losses here. 
All other new products include new Pepperidge Farm farmhouse cookings and, of course, Bolthouse Farms with another extension, Plant Protein Milk, which is a dairy alternative, 10 grams of protein. We've mentioned in past podcasts how milk substitutes or plant-based milks have become incredibly popular and are eating up a lot of the market share, even away from dairy milk. But Bolthouse Farms might be a little bit late in terms of the entry as other brands such as Silk have gained higher market share than at Bolthouse Farms, at least in terms of plant-based milk. Bolthouse Farms still one of the leaders in market share, along with Naked in terms of refrigerated juices. They talked also about the importance of expanding their e-commerce platform, something I mentioned earlier. Customization in the supply chain is said to enhance Campbell's ability also to source different products for different markets. Here we're talking about a lot of technological developments. They highlighted a broadened partnership with DHL as well. But there's a lot of technology in the frame. We've talked about it before even with some of our guests on the Retail Focus podcast that's making sourcing a lot easier for some of these packaged food businesses. Their global biscuits and snacks division now here was said to have performed well, so not their domestic division, but their global division. They also own the Goldfish brand, it should be noted. It was said to have exceeded all other functional areas. In fact, it's their number one product in their snack category, which is interesting considering the organic incumbents from Annie's there, which we've talked about again in the past on the show as a brand that Campbell's does own. Solid performance also in Pepperidge Farm in terms of global biscuits and snacks. They mentioned a rejuvenated chunk cookie line and like with soups, they're trying to focus on simple ingredients. Campbell said they have an overarching initiative adding ounces into houses. So they want each person to maybe buy one more can of soup, that just one more item, increase it year over year. Their shares, as we mentioned, they're not increasing. They fell 8% from $49 per share to $45 per share, rebounded to about $48 per share Wednesday, although the market did have a pretty good day Wednesday, reaching at one point an all-time high, or at least the New York Stock Exchange did. For the trailing 12 months, shares have been rather volatile of the company, highs of $64 per share to lows of $45 per share. Well, with National French Toast Day Wednesday, November 29th, several of FSRs. We're getting in on the occasion. And the reason we bring it up to end the food focus, we're always interested in how the major restaurant brands leverage these type of events to drive traffic and or attract new customers. And we start with maybe the brand that hit National French Toast Day the hardest, which is IHOP and and Leighton. IHOP, though they've been performing better than their Dine Equity partner, Applebee's, they're still in need of some help through some LTOs. They certainly are in need of some help, and I think taking advantage of these trending topics seems like every other week, every other month, every other day, I see something on Twitter saying hashtag National Cheeseburger Day, hashtag National Hash Brown Day, and it is so interesting to both you and I, Trent. We talk often on and off the podcast about how companies do not take advantage of these types of things. The social media, even if something's trending to the degree of five or 6,000 people, why not branch out and try something, try a one-day offering or do a, a three-hour window even? Because some of these companies, as you'll see with Dine Equity, as we remember, actually had falling traffic, falling comps, and the company overall lost $443.2 million in their latest quarter. And while IHOP, like you said, is better off than Applebee's, Their same-store restaurant comps were still down 3.2%, so why not try to take advantage 
of some of this free marketing because that's exactly what it is. It's free. People are talking about it. And to be honest with you, if you have a lot more followers, you're actually going to be a lot more visible if you say anything about a particular topic. That's just the way social media works. And it is good to see a lot of national franchises and local ones trying to take advantage of National French Toast Day. However, we would be remiss if we did not actually have a full disclosure that this is actually my favorite breakfast food. So while we don't always talk about all of the trending topics that are on Facebook or Twitter, what have you, this is my favorite thing to eat when I go to one of these restaurants, whether it be a more conventional IHOP or one of the run-of-the-mill mom-and-pop type setups. As for IHOP, some of their LTOs include a brioche French toast stuffed with cheesecake filling, really the filling is just in between two thick slices of French toast, but this is an iteration of the French toast that can be topped three different ways with Oreo cookies and cream, toffee, apple cheesecake, and strawberry cheesecake. We mentioned in a prior food focus about how apple has been a big flavor this fall, and it looks as though IHOP is banking on that for the winter as well. The cheesecake filling for their Oreo version has Oreo pieces incorporating into it. As you could imagine, IHOP is also pairing the cheesecake stuffed French toast with their original stuffed French toast. This limited time offering is a revisit of a menu item stuffed French toast that was available at IHOP for about 13 years before being retired from the menu here recently. Often restaurants will do this even if they feel this item doesn't have enough year-round demand. And honestly, this is something I'd like to see from them. Why not try something that you've taken out of the menu entirely? Although the restaurant says it is the most requested item to bring back, and that is probably why they are bringing it back at the end of the day for those sales. This version has cinnamon raisin toast with sweet cream filling topped with the diner's choice with syrups or fruit. All of this comes at a time when IHOP is increasingly emphasizing to-go options and mobile ordering. Just two weeks ago, in fact, the company announced a nationwide rollout of their online ordering platform as part of the expansion of their IHOP and Go platform. This includes special packaging and purports to keep breakfast foods fresh. Some of the packaging is even shaped around the food, like special vented packages for pancakes. Spent nearly a year tweaking the program before a stage-by-stage -stage rollout. They also announced a partnership with delivery testing with Amazon, DoorDash in California, Texas, Oklahoma, Washington, and certain Utah markets. So let's go back to French Toast Day since we did a little bit of a deeper dive surrounding IHOP. Looking at the restaurant landscape, surprisingly, Bob Evans didn't release anything for the day, either on the web or social media. Regional breakfast and lunch chain Jimmy's Egg also had nothing that we noted. Cracker Barrel promoted their existing LTOs, so limited time offers including two types of French toast, the Cinnamon Streusel French Toast, and their Triple Berry French Toast. These are their main breakfast limited time offers going on right now. So the timing met up perfectly for Cracker Barrel, which is a company that's having a little bit of success in this industry despite shrinking traffic elsewhere. Cracker Barrel's been mostly even over the past year. 
Denny's had a, what we found to be a really odd tweet without using the hashtag about the day. And I, it says, and I quote, it's National French Toast Day. Do you think this holiday is upset? It's so close to Thanksgiving, living in its shadow, end quote. And everyone was kind of confused about that. They offered no kinds of deals, no kinds of imagery as far as their French toast at their particular locations. When you look even deeper at some regional chains, a lot of regional chains had either limited time offers that they rolled out just for the day or significant discounts. For example, Hash Kitchen locations in Arizona were offering 50% off French toast dishes. Neater's Bakery and Cafe in Utah had additional flavor variants available. And several Las Vegas eateries, particularly those on the Strip, were offering French toast deals for little... Uh, for as little as 129 but I think Leighton and I are both willing to declare IHOP as the winner of National French Toast Day, at least in terms of their social media presence, at least in terms of their social media engagement. When you look at the engagement on their social media posts and also on their press releases ahead of National French Toast Day, they were really the only major national restaurant to focus heavily on this particular holiday. And for them, certainly they're hoping that it garnered a little bit of extra traffic that they might not have had otherwise today. Just a little bump can make a huge difference in those same store sales. For the record, Leighton mentioned French toast with his favorite breakfast food. I would say French toast probably comes in third behind pancakes and waffles for me. Well, we'll finish up this edition of the Food Focus with a segment we call What We Ate. And Leighton is turning this on its head a little bit. He's borrowing from Retail Focus. We have a segment there that we finish up the show with called Looking Ahead. Because Leighton's looking ahead at a story that broke, honestly, just before we began recording this podcast. Yeah, this was something that we really should have had in the podcast, but we didn't have time for it because we didn't know it was coming. So it turns out that Steve Ells, the founder and CEO of Chipotle, is going to be stepping down after the company finds a new executive with demonstrated turnaround expertise. And this is interesting because this comes as a lot of analysts, a lot of people close to the company, and even Bill Ackman in an interview not that long ago said Steve Ells is still the person for the job. They were not looking to replace him and really try to put down their activist pressure to have someone else in there. Over 2,300 restaurants right now Chipotle has. The company is still growing one to 200 restaurants per year. However, obviously the food safety issues over the last year and a half have really caused a lot of pressure, a lot of downward pressure on that share price. This is something that really surprised me because overall, this is a company that has succeeded in and out and has really changed the landscape of fast casual. Wasn't that long ago when fast casual wasn't even something to be said, but Chipotle really put out the food quality, sustainability, where they get their food to the forefront of their whole business purpose. This is something that a lot of FSRs, a lot of QSRs really took a liking to and therefore had to change their model because a lot of customers we're wanting more transparency in their actual food on the menu items. And so I think this is really a sad time. But the positive here is that Steve Ells is actually going to stay on the board. He's going to remain chairman. And in another statement, Ells said that he is going to be looking forward towards really guiding the company to its core principles, something that he as a founder was looking to do years ago looking to have sustainable products brought forth and really keeping its core mission in place. So for those hardcore Chipotle lovers like myself, that is good news. 
One other looking ahead story, Trent, that I really have to gloss over very quickly here is the fact that attorneys opened five different investigations into that Arby's deal that we just talked about buying Buffalo Wild Wings. Five different law firms have actually filed. One of the law firms has spoke out and they said potential legal claims against the board for possible breaches of fiduciary duties in relation to the deal, basically saying that the board members did not act in the shareholders' best interests at the end of the day, selling for $157 a share. So very curious to see where that goes, but we will be sure to keep you posted. Well, I'm going to do the traditional what we ate, only I'm going to do the very traditional Trent thing to do here and turn it into what we drank. As I was on the road last week, we kind of covered this on the Retail Focus podcast, but went through Colorado and visited a couple of different breweries, both of which I was very impressed with. One was the Pound Brewing Company in Hayes, at least. That's how I assume it's pronounced because it's spelled LB, like the abbreviation for pound. In any case, I had two different beers there. I had the Flying Bison Rye, and I had a German Rausch beer as well. The Rausch beer was fantastic. It was probably one of my more favorite Rausch beers, which is a smoked type of beer or a beer where the malt is smoked. The ambiance in that brewery was fantastic. Looking into distribution, they don't have a very wide distribution outside of Hayes, Kansas, which is where they're located, and really, it's quite remarkable. They have a brewery in what a lot of people would consider kind of the the middle of nowhere in western Kansas, but it's this fantastic brewery in downtown A's. Highly recommended if you happen to be on I-70. And then I went to a brewery in a more traditional location north of Colorado Springs. It's the Pikes Peak Brewery in Monument, Colorado. I tried their Adaman Winter Warmer, and a lot of winter warmer beers tend to be a little bit too sweet or too heavily spiced. But this one balanced everything out, especially considering the alcohol by volume was around 8% or actually a little bit over 8%. So I think given that this beer tended away from the sweetness and had enough earthy hop nature to kind of balance out the strength of the overall beer, and I felt like it was an excellent choice. Now, this brewery does distribute a little bit more widely, mostly in cans. So if you happen to see it, I certainly highly recommend products from the uh, Pikes Peak Brewery just north of Colorado Springs. I heartily enjoyed my time there. Well, that'll do it for this edition of the Food Focus. And there's an announcement we want to make. This will actually be, at least for the moment, the last full edition of the Food Focus podcast as we're trying to focus a little bit more on the Retail Focus podcast. For enjoyers of the Food Focus podcast, we want to tell you to go ahead and subscribe to the Retail Focus because starting next week, we're going to fold elements of the Food Focus into Retail Focus in a special segment. So go on, go over there, follow the Retail Focus. We'll continue as needed and when there's a lot of food industry news to drop a Food Focus every now and again. So stay subscribed to this podcast. But again, most of it is going to be folded into the Retail Focus podcast starting next week. We certainly thank everyone that subscribe to this one also everyone that subscribes to us on twitter and we'll keep tweeting out there at the food focus and also at retail podcast on twitter and check us out also the retail podcast on spotify as well as we've just now been appointed to spotify just search retail focus podcast and up we pop until next week and until the retail focus this week so long this has been the food focus podcast 
As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.